Hey, 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 and you're here again listening to the Nasty Pasty podcast when you could be out there searching for the lost children or hiding inside rusty refrigerators. So on this show, we feature no baking recipes or convenience food tips, but instead we offer gory ganache and blood-soaked buns to go with your movies, all of which just simply didn't try hard enough in the nasty school to be put on the DPP's detention list. It's your much-maligned host, Andy Roberts, here, yet a bloody gen, like a naughty child born without Saturn's influence. I search high and low for the nasty-era movies that remind me greatly of the sick filth that was much shouted about in the 80s, but actually didn't get sanctioned, unlike the actual DPP Video Nasties, which can be found on the Video Nasties podcast or The Strange and Deadly Show, if you wish to find out more. But enough about that for now, let's discover today's Deadly Danish and delve into this week's duo of films. So, this week, I'm tackling evil children as a theme. Two horror films that emphasise children as the main antagonists. They are 1980's trauma film, The Children, and 1981's occasion-themed slasher, Bloody Birthday. Now, evil children have been a trope in horror films for a long time, which can be traced back to 1956's The Bad Seed. Now, the movie concerns a little girl called Rhoda, who is the daughter of a serial killer, and she's inherited her her mother's sociopathy, uh, causing her to murder other people and children alike. 1960's Village of the Damned also featured evil children, itself based on the John Wyndham novel The Midwich Cuckoos. A village falls unconscious mysteriously for four hours, and awakens seemingly okay until a few months later when all the women in the village find that they're pregnant. They give birth to near-identical children with mind-reading powers who proceed to kill the adults by forcing them to kill themselves. Other notable examples of evil children are Regan from The Exorcist, uh, Damien from the Omen film series, and also the twins from The Shining. Children are effective icons of horror, mostly due to their invulnerability and their assumed innocence. I mean, in most situations, the adult characters are reluctant to believe that the children have done anything wrong, and are certainly unlikely to harm them. The depiction of such violence against children is still quite a taboo subject to show in film, and some of the video nasties were controversial for this reason of having children in peril, such as the child murder in Fight for Your Life, uh, the near death of a child in Toby Hooper's Death Trap, and also the child slaughter in The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. Others were simply controversial due to the title relating to children, such as Robert Voskanian's The Child and Michael Laughlin's Dead Kids as the whole focus of the video nasties was centred around the idea that the UK's children were being corrupted by explicit horror films. But anyway, let's start with the first film, which is 1980's The Children. Thank you. 
In the town of Ravensback, a build-up of pressure at a nuclear chemical factory results in a burst pipe causing a radioactive yellow cloud to engulf the area. Five children on a school bus, Paul, Jenny, Ellen, Tommy and Janet, their bus driver and a pregnant woman called Kathy in a separate car, drive through the cloud when they pass by the factory. Later, the sheriff comes across the school bus completely abandoned, with the children's bags and lunchboxes still on board. Concerned, he drives to Tommy's mother's house and convinces her to help him search for the children. She searches the cemetery and stumbles across the badly charred body of the bus driver. Tommy soon appears from behind a gravestone and hugs his mother, only for her to burn horrifically when Tommy puts his black fingernailed hands on her. Another of, another of the children, Ellen, goes home and hugs her mother and father, while Paul hugs his sister and father. All of them are cooked and corroded by the children's touch. Jenny's father, John, who is Kathy's husband, soon joins the search for his children, and they find Janet in a catatonic state, but clearly not zombified, as she lacks the black fingernails. The deputy and storekeeper Molly are also killed by Ellen, Tommy and Paul, who are walking together and lure them to their deaths in order to fry them. During the journey with John and the sheriff, Janet's fingernails darken and she attacks the sheriff only for him to notice and avoid her while she runs away. After finding all the parents of the children dead, the pair return home to Kathy and prepare for the five kids who were encroaching upon the house. Kathy is lured outside by her daughter Jenny, but John manages to intervene and locks Jenny outside. The sheriff then tries to repel the children with gunfire, causing Kathy to freak out and knock the sheriff unconscious, as she's unaware of the children's condition. Meanwhile, John and Kathy's other son, Clarkie, is killed by Paul, whom he'd let into the house to play with him, and Kathy realises the danger when she discovers Clarkie's body. In a fit of rage, John slices off Paul's hands with a katana when he attacks Kathy, shedding no blood, but actually killing the zombie as the fingernails fade. Taking this to be the solution, John and the sheriff go outside and dismember the children with the sword, finally stopping the zombie threat. Unfortunately, Ellen is still alive as she'd only had a single hand severed, and she cooks the sheriff to death when he enters his car. John manages to dispatch her and falls asleep next to the sheriff's corpse, distraught at the events. In the morning, he rushes home as Kathy falls into labour, and she gives birth to her newborn child. But while she's breastfeeding... John notices in horror that the baby has black fingernails. Is Janet at home? Isn't she a little young for you, Sheriff? She's only nine. Sure, please. I really haven't the faintest idea. Jack, darling, have you seen Janet lurking around the house? No, sweet. She's always lurking around the house. I don't want to alarm you about your daughter, Miss Shaw. I discovered the school bus out by the cemetery. None of the children were on it. Neither was Fred Mansfield, the driver. Mansfield's a bit senile, if you ask me. He probably took them on an impromptu picnic or something. Did Janet say anything about a picnic this morning? I really haven't the faintest idea. <laughs> I never rise before ten. Not now, love. Exactly what are you trying to tell us, Sheriff? That Janet is missing along with all the other children of Raven's Back. You don't think they've been kidnapped, do you? I don't know what to think. A kidnapping in Raven's Back. Oh, Jack, how exciting! <laughs> it's, uh, it's a lovely piece 
You sure? Why, Sheriff, I didn't know you were into art. Jack and I brought that back from Rome last year, didn't we, darling? Call me if Janet shows up. Released in 1980 at the apex of the slasher film, the children took a different tactic when it came to horror and mashed a zombie film with evil children to create a rather unique, if somewhat clumsy, result. Also known commonly as the children of Raven's Back, the film was retitled in other territories as various things such as Such Gentle Little Monsters, Hugs and Kisses, The Yellow Mist and Fatal Hug, but in either form it's a bit of a clunker for several reasons which we'll get into later. But the film's script was the brainchild of writers Carlton J. Albright and Edward Terry, who were personal friends, being the first script that they had actually worked on together. They also produced the film and decided to have Edward Terry take over the project as director. But due to some unforeseen circumstances, however, it was actually uh, Max Kalmanovich who would eventually direct, and this drove a wedge between the two friends that wasn't quite healed until almost ten years later when the pair collaborated again on the cult movie Luther the Geek in 1990. Apart from Edward Terry acting in both The Children and Luther the Geek, and Carlton J. Albright producing Dreams Come True, which is another film directed by Kalmanovich, the pair's careers never really panned out into anything substantial, and they've only made minuscule appearances in documentaries about their films. Even Max Kalmanovich only directed the two aforementioned movies, and he went on to have a small career working as a sound technician on TV productions. It is apparent, however, that both Albright and Terry were unhappy with the job that Kalmanovich performed, and the crew were reportedly dissatisfied too. The film was produced with a low budget in mind, and certain concessions were made to obtain certain things for the film's requirements. For example, Molly Cliff was a local girl from Great Barrington in Massachusetts where the movie was filmed, and she was hired as a production assistant in order for her parents to let the crew access her house in order to shoot some scenes there. The cemetery, also in Great Barrington, was accessed when Albright paid money to a charity that the caretakers of the cemetery specified. Two of the children, Ellen and Tommy, were even played by the producer's children, Nathaniel and Sarah Albright. To create the haunting sound effect of the zombie children dying, sounds were recorded of cats in heat. Despite the ultra-low budget, they did manage to get some rather interesting choices in both their cast and crew. Main man John is played by Martin Shakar, who had a small role in 1976's Bloodbath, and a more prominent role as John Travolta's priest brother in 1997's, oh, 1977 excuse me, uh, Saturday Night Fever. The only other actor of note is Peter Maloney, who plays Hank, one of the men at the borders of Ravensback. He made an appearance in the sobering film Requiem for a Dream, as well as one of the characters in John Carpenter's horror classic The Thing, which was actually seized by the police in Britain as it was a Section 3 video nasty. Some of the crew were no strangers to the genre, such as cinematographer Barry Abrams, who shot Friday the 13th, another Section 3 nasty, and roller coaster of a slasher film which kicked the genre into full throttle. Harry Manfredini, also from the Friday the 13th series, part two of which also made the Section 3 list, joined as the composer, fairly evident in the almost identical soundtrack that only seems to be missing the signature k sound. 
The most successful of the crew, however, would have to be the special effects man, Craig Lyman. While he started out as a special effect artist working on other films like 1985's The Stuff, he eventually had a very prolific career as a makeup artist, and he worked on dozens of high-profile films, including Annie, Home Alone 2, Malcolm X, Carlito's Way, Forrest Gump, Godzilla, Spider-Man 3, The Happening, The Other Guys, Men in Black 3, and The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Clearly an example of how humble origins are the beginning of every prolific person's career. I mean, the Section 3 video nasty Night Beast was by Don Dola, that was J.J. Abrams' first outing as a sound technician. And the other film, uh, Parasite, that was Demi Moore's first on-screen role. Now, despite its unique depiction of zombies, the children unfortunately falls a bit flat for a multitude of reasons, one of which is the pacing. While the film begins okay enough, the film unfortunately then drags its leaden arse and shows us endless shots of the kids sneaking around, the adults driving around, empty pointless dialogue scenes, and just other bits of filler. The moments where the kids are attacking the grown-ups are few and far between, and the film just lacks any kind of real suspense. Apart from a few creepy shots, for example the reflections of the smiling ghouls outside Molly's shop, the creepiness is fairly milquetoast, and while the adults being fried to a crisp by the radioactive children are fairly graphic and exciting, the effect is repeated quite often and eventually it just becomes a bit too repetitive. Another reason why the film fails is the characters. All of the adults seem to care very little about the fact that their children are lost, with one mother surmising that the bus driver probably took them off for an impromptu picnic, and is somehow not panicking at one bit. Another mother is so blasé about her child's safety, and she just keeps on drinking, smoking, and ogling her buff, muscly boyfriend as he exercises. One of the pinnacles of this complete lack of concern for children comes with Kathy, who smokes while heavily pregnant, despite apologising to the unborn child. Only the sheriff actually seems to give a shit, but this is also a guy that gets suspicious of Janet as she reaches out to touch him and claims that she was attacking him. Granted, this is actually what the kid was doing, but unless he had a crystal ball or is just incredibly sensitive, there's no way that you can misconstrue what Janet is doing as an attack, period. The children as well are just not particularly well realised as zombies. I mean, the nth degree burn effects are fairly gruesome on the adults, but the children are just a little bit dark-eyed with black fingernails, no more threatening than your average emo. Finally, the technical specs. The film quality is really poor, even for 1980, and the cheapness really comes through. The real changes are horrifically obvious. There's large gouges into the film quality, along with muddy colour, dirty scratches and blotches, and several scenes have blocks at the edge of the screen as though the transfer's incorrect. While this can be solved with a good remaster, which hasn't actually surfaced yet, the film's shortcomings are just too numerous for this to be classed as a good film. While I know I've just technically trashed the film, however, it doesn't really mean that I didn't enjoy it. And in fact, this film is a cult film for many reasons, and I loved the sheer ridiculousness of the events that were unfolding. The fact that the parents are the most uncaring set of saplings that ever graced the screen is very giggle-inducing, especially when the acting is so damn cheesy. Even though the film seems to go on for longer than it actually is, and the premise is ridiculous beyond belief, the film is very something special to enjoy with good friends, some booze and popcorn. And I believe the term is, it's so bad, it's good. Now, after a successful box office run in 1980, the film had VHS releases in both the US and the UK. 
Alpha Video released the film in Britain in 1983 as the children of Raven's back smack dab in the middle of the nasty scare, and it's very possible that copies were seized in the police raids. Not only were children featured on the cover in a horror context, but the title was so similar to the Section 3 nasty film The Child, it's not that unreasonable to believe that the VHS got some attention. After the Video Recordings Act in 1984, the Alpha Video version was withdrawn, and the film was unavailable until it was re-released in 1986 from Apex Video, with a fresh 18 rating on it. No version of the film, however, was subject to censorship, probably due to the repetitive nature of the gore. Now, since this version was released in 1986, no other copy has actually been released in the UK since, rendering it a very tempting film that's begging for a modern remaster. There is, however, a 25th anniversary edition in the US on DVD, released by the infamous Troma, but despite saying that it's digitally remastered, and even having Lloyd Kaufman come onto screen to explain it, it is in fact the same grungy print with all the technical problems that I've mentioned before. It does, however, feature certain extras for any diehard fans of the film. And that was The Children. So we'll carry straight on with our next film in the episode, which is 1981's Bloody Birthday. In 1970, three children are born during an eclipse. Ten years later, a couple are murdered at a graveyard with a shovel and a skipping rope, and the next day, young assistant teacher Joyce is alarmed when the news gets around her school. Sheriff Brody shows the end of a skipping rope and asks if any of the children were at the graveyard the previous night, which nobody responds to. Kids Debbie, Stephen and Curtis ask their teacher Miss Davis if the class can be excused the following week for their birthday party, which is denied. At home, Debbie asks her dad Sheriff Brody to come outside and dangles the skipping rope in front of him when suddenly Stephen and Curtis appear and beat him to death with a baseball bat. Sometime after the funeral, Curtis locks Joyce's younger brother Timmy in an old refrigerator and leaves him to die, though he does manage to escape. Debbie later puts a picture of Miss Davis into a strange scrapbook, while Curtis swaps the now-dead sheriff's revolver for a plastic replica and killing Miss Davis the next day in the school kitchen. Joyce discovers the body and, distraught, she heads home, only to find a note supposedly from Timmy. She goes to the scrapyard due to the note and is attacked by Curtis and Stephen, who are driving a car at her to run her over, though they are unsuccessful. Later that night, speaking about astrology, Joyce tells Timmy that Debbie, Stephen and Curtis were born on a day when Saturn was completely eclipsed, the planet responsible for conscience, leading her to believe that they have none. 
The day after Curtis kills a couple in their car in their van with the gun, it's the three kids' birthday party, and Joyce is embarrassed when she suspects Curtis of poisoning the cake, only for him to reveal that he's actually tricked her. Debbie's older sister Beverly, however, discovers the macabre scrapbook and shows it to her mother. While Debbie blames Curtis and Stephen for it, she gets revenge on Beverly by killing her with a bow and arrow. She blames the boys yet again when the three kids are caught by Joyce trying to strangle Timmy with a garden hose and tries to appear innocent. The next day, in a fake apologetic mood, she asks Joyce if she can babysit her for the evening and the kids attack Joyce and Timmy once they show up. Managing to avoid the gunshots and the other attempts to harm them, Joyce manages to finally trap Stephen in a box and Curtis is caught when the gun runs out of bullets. Debbie, however, flees down the road and lies to her mother that Curtis and Stephen have done everything and forced her to participate. Once the police turn up, the two boys are arrested and Joyce attends the court hearing a few weeks after, seeing the two boys being sent off to a juvenile facility. Debbie, however, is shown to be living under a different identity with her mother, who believed her daughter's story and has escaped to a different state. Debbie promises to be a good girl, only for a dead truck driver to be seen in the background. This is Debbie's chart. It's really weird. Because there was an eclipse the day she was born, both the sun and the moon were blocking Saturn. There should be something missing from her personality. Why? Because Saturn controls her emotions and the way that you treat people. erroneously cited as the slasher film that was shelved for five years after it was completed, 1981's Bloody Birthday was actually filmed in 1980 and released in the following year to fairly bad reviews and poor critical reception. By 1981 the slasher cycle was in full blast with other competitive and comparable titles like Graduation Day or Happy Birthday to Me. Bloody Birthday was quite frankly lost among the dozens of very similar titles and unfortunately it doesn't shine that much in comparison due to the meagre bloodshed and a laissez-faire attitude to the plot. Filmed in Glendale, California, the film concerns a trio of children who were born during an eclipse with Saturn having no influence on the children and they have no conscience as a result. Director Ed Hunt co-wrote the screenplay with Barry Pearson, who had collaborated with Hunt on his previous horror film, The Very Vanilla Plague, in 1979. Hunt had done a few science fiction productions, such as Starship Invasions and the documentary UFOs Are Real, before he helmed this entry into the slasher cycle. He then went on to do the memorable 1988's The Brain, as well as a video game, The Jungle Book, The New Adventures of Mowgli, in 1995. Pearson, however, soon made the majority of his career in TV rather than film, producing a multitude of shows like Divorce Court and Iron Road. Cinematographer Stephen L. Posey fared much better in the horror genre and shot the Section 3 nasty Blood Song, as well as Slumber, Par- Slumber Party Massacre, Savage Streets, and Friday the 13th Part 5, A New Beginning. Editor Anne Mills also joined Posey on Blood Song, while composer Arlon Ober has joined Fresh straight off the set of The Incredible Melting Man. 
Now, Ober would continue working on the music of many other genre films of the 80s, such as X-Ray, which is sometimes released as Hospital Massacre, the Section 3 nasty films Superstition and Night Beast, House, House 2, the second story, and Child's Play. Arguably, however, it was actually special effects guy Roger George who found the most success. George had previously worked on The Girl Who Knew Too Much, The Dunwich Horror, and Joe Dante's The Howling before working on Bloody Birthday. But he then went on to do the special effects for three video nasties, Parasite, Superstition, and Mausoleum. But other memorable projects include Android, Savage Island, Ghoulies, Chopping Mall, Night of the Creeps, Bad Dreams, and most famously, James Cameron's The Terminator. Some interesting people also made it into Bloody Birthday's cast. Final Girl Joyce was played by Laurie Lethin, who had made some TV appearances in Charlie's Angels and the Dukes of Hazard before landing this role. She performed her own stunts in the film, and she had a jolly good time going on to do more parts in slasher films, such as The Prey and Return to Horror High, alongside co-star George Clooney. More famously faced is Beverly, however, who was played by Julie Brown, who had her own stint on MTV and where she mocked famous singers. She also had minor roles in Police Academy 2 and 1995's Clueless with Alicia Silverstone, made dozens of animated appearances in stuff like Tiny Toons Adventures, as well as having a modern recurring role in the American sitcom The Middle. Now, Timmy was played by Casey Martell, who had already played one of the children in the original Amityville Horror, and after Bloody Birthday, he had quite a big role in E.T. the Extraterrestrial, as well as performing on the soundtrack. Debbie was played by Elizabeth Hoy, who'd appeared in X-Ray, along with co-star Billy Jane, who played the menacing Curtis. Now, Jane had made several more appearances in cult films, such as Superstition, Cujo, and Joe Dante's The Burbs. The unfortunate Miss Davis was played by Susan Strasberg, and she appeared in The Manor 2 by William Girdler. Some very fleeting appearances, however, are by Jose Ferrer, who's the uncle of George Clooney and also the father of actor Miguel Ferrer, who's famous from Robocop and Twin Peaks. And Jose Ferrer was a veteran from such films like Lawrence of Arabia and Dune, while there's also a blink-and-you'll-miss-it appearance from Michael Dudikoff of American Ninja fame. Unfortunately, Bloody Birthday, it isn't quite the slasher that you'd qualify as a classic. While the setup is relatively bonkers, insinuating that astrology has a large influence on everyone who was born, the film is handled with a nonchalant attitude that doesn't quite carry it enough off the screen. The three murderous children, Curtis, Stephen and Debbie, they perpetrate their crimes with little reason other than randomness with only the murder of Miss Davis and Beverly stemming from a childish notion of payback. Not only do their crimes seem random, but the adults are completely unsuspicious, despite the children usually being around the crime scenes, and even though Joyce eventually starts to suspect them, she's rather paltry when it comes to dealing with them, and she's seemingly unable to smack them about the face as punishment. The only character who acts kind of naturally is Debbie's mother, who suffers the loss of her husband and eldest daughter in a short space of time, and actually checks into a mental hospital due to the grief. While they are children, and films of this nature don't usually depict violence against kids, it's just a little too frustrating that the children cannot get a true comeuppance. And this is especially true of Debbie, who actually avoids punishment altogether by the film's conclusion, and is able to murder freely again without penalty, resulting in a very dissatisfying ending. 
The actors portraying the children, though, are very good in their roles, as they get under your skin enough to make you want to smack them. But the same can't be said of their crimes. Hardly any of the killings, while conceptually they are awful, are actually explicit enough to warrant a gasp, with many of them being off-screen shootings from Curtis's revolver. The only real bit of bloodshed is Beverly's death, where she gets a shot through the eye with an arrow, which is a bit of a disappointment for gore fans, especially when they had the talents of Roger George at their disposal. I may be a little biased, however, because I turn off a little when the murder weapon in a slasher film is a gun. I just personally find it a little bit boring, unless there's a brutal exit wound in something like Fulci's The Beyond. It is possible, of course, that the film wasn't actually meant to be a slasher in pre-production, and just became more slasher-like to accommodate the growing trend. There are certain scenes in the film which homage the genre, such as the kids spying on Beverly through the hole in Debbie's bedroom, very similar to the point-of-view killer shots in other films, while the scene of Joyce and Beverly walking down the street to school is without doubt lifted wholesale from John Carpenter's Halloween. The setting and weather is the same, the leaves are the same colour, the camera angles are the same, Joyce is wearing the exact same clothing as Jamie Lee Curtis, and there's even the sheriff in the scene later. Like the typical slasher film, though, the astronomy angle is quite weak and there's little justification offered for the kids' homicidal behaviour. But that didn't stop the filmmakers from constructing the ending, paving the way for a potential sequel. Unfortunately, Bloody Birthday didn't stand out enough, and upon its release in 1981, it didn't fare very well at the box office, and so a sequel was quashed before it even started. But interestingly, one of the film's posters in Germany, it depicts the same house from Tommy Lee Wallace's TV miniseries, Salem's Lot. While the US didn't receive a VHS release until 1986, Ivor Film Services released an uncut version on UK VHS in 1982, right in the midst of the Ferrari. It's almost guaranteed, however, that it was seized in the police raids for several reasons. Not only was the title very similar to the video nasty Happy Birthday to Me, but Ivor Film Services were already in major trouble for releasing a huge slew of video nasties. The list is quite big, actually. It's Night of the Demon, Night of the Bloody Apes, Blood Song, Christmas Evil, Dead Kids, Graduation Day, Pigs and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But most notably, however, the film did not suffer censorship when it was re-released in 1993, or on its 2004 release, and it was actually remastered and released on Blu-ray in 2014. So that was Bloody Birthday, and it was the end of the show for this week, chaps. Now, as per usual, please do send in any feedback for the films we've got on our baking list. You can find a list of upcoming films on Twitter, and send any audio or written responses to nastypastypodcast at gmail.com. 
or you can discuss it with us on Twitter and Facebook. Just search for Nasty Pasty. So next week, we have a decidedly less child-friendly topic to cover, a pair of rather sultry and licentious sexy cannibal films. So we've got Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals and Papaya, Love Goddess of the Cannibals. Mixing the almost synonymous erotica and violence in a tropical setting, we'll discover two arousing pictures that just happen to be both directed by Italian sleazemeister Joe D'Amato, or Aristide Massachese for Italian purists. But either way, I'll see you all you guys next week, and thank you all for listening. Farewell! (laughs) 